Fantastic. Good afternoon and welcome back to all of you joining online and those in the room. My name is Annalisa Prizong. I'm a researcher here at ODI. We are fast approaching the end of the conference and uh, over the past couple of days uh, we have tried to understand how finance ministers can best prioritize and allocate their resources to tackle a growing number of longer-term longer challenges at times when their own finances are under pressure and also that services increasingly becoming unaffordable for many countries or even no longer an option for others. So in this context, uh, the exam question for this session is can international finance help relax all the spending constraints? And if so, how? Well, I won't have the tough job of answering these questions, uh, <laughs> but uh, before introducing the stellar panel I have here in the room and online, uh, um, I would like to take advantage of my privilege as chair to share some reflections on our exam question. So one way to relax spending constraints uh, is to boost the lending of multilateral development banks. I was lucky enough to support the members of the independent expert group on strengthening multilateral development banks mandated by the G20 presidency of India this year. I certainly know that MDBs are a very small part of the international finance landscape, but they have a unique combination of affordable finance, of technical assistance, research, convening power, and they can leverage their finances as banks. One of the co-conveners of the independent expert group uh, on MDB reform is Professor Larry Summers. Many of you may remember him, uh, many different roles, including a former US Treasury Secretary. All the time that we met uh, throughout the past six months, he reminded us one important point, the world is on fire. And this is the reason why we need a bigger and longer push on transformative investments to tackle the most pressing challenges of our times, and climate change is one of them. A world on fire needs multilateral development banks, and we need MDBs to triple their mandates, their instruments, and finances. I'm not naive, this is hard, but a reform agenda that's tripling the finances of MDBs shouldn't be considered an ambitious agenda. It's what we need now to tackle, again, the most pressing challenges we've been discuss discussing over the past couple of days. And again, we shouldn't forget that bigger banks should also be better and more effective banks. Just for your information, the report of the Independent Expert Group on MDB reform will be released uh, at the end of uh, the World Bank IMF annual meetings, and it will set the vision for the future of MDBs, uh, but most importantly, the roadmap to get there. So please do engage with it when it's going to be released soon. But in the meantime, and taking a much broader view on the role of international finance can play in relaxing the spending constraints for finance ministers. I'm delighted to introduce the stellar panel that my colleagues at ODI have brought together this afternoon. Let me introduce online Sarah Jane Ahmed, the finance advisor of the We20 Group of Ministers of Finance. I think, Sarah Jane, you're joining us from New York, am I correct? Uh, I'm in Manila. You're, so, uh, thank you so much. I've been briefed kind of differently. So, I would say thank you, Sarah, for staying up so late. Uh, um, uh, um, it's, it's really impressive. And just for, for your information, uh, the, uh, the vulnerable group, uh, the V20, the vulnerable 20 group of ministers of finance of the Climate Vulnerable Forum uh, brings together 68 members. Am I correct, uh, Sarah Jane? Yes. Yes, perfect. Uh, um, and I would like to 
To bring uh, to everyone's attention, Minsara Jane has played a key role in a number of initiatives, including the Sustainable Insurance Finance Facility at the V20. The international public finance system should reflect the priorities of the countries it's meant to support. We always forget about this, uh, and they should be at the center stage to any discussion on the reform agenda of the IMF, multilateral development banks and bilateral funders. So we look forward later on to hearing from Sarah Jane about the changes with B20 members would like to see in international financial institutions. Uh, on my left, Musesso is a senior advisor to the Ministry of Finance in Senegal, is playing a pivotal role in setting up the Just Economic Transition Partnerships, JETIP, to support Senegal in the green transition. You might be aware this was announced at the Paris Summit, the, the new Global Finance Impact Summit in Paris in June. And I would like to reiterate, this is a clear example of how government leadership and international support can come together around a long-term vision for transformative change. If you haven't done so already and would like to learn more about the new generation of country platforms, I would encourage you to read a great analysis that my colleagues here at ODI have published. Sir Hadley was the lead author. You can see some copies here in the, um, just outside the conference room, and I hope some of my colleagues can pop up the link in the chat. On my right, uh, uh, let me introduce you Kalpana Kosher. Uh, Kalpana is now the Director of Development Policy and Finance and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, you, many of you know her, she's covered a number of very senior positions at the IMF before. As many of you know by now, the past few years have been, I've seen a, gr a growing push for reform of international financial institutions. I've just mentioned that, particularly the World Bank, uh, to expand the operation, particularly to tackle global challenges. Climate change is one of them, and across countries, both, lo both low-income and middle-income countries. Uh, concessional affordable finance plays a key role uh, in enabling countries to build resilience and also to help them uh, in, towards a low-carbon transition. But the most important point is a scarce resource. And a key challenge here is to scale up and maximize the impact of concessional finance. And Kalpana, we look forward to hearing more about the solution to these challenges. And here on my right, it's such a privilege to welcome Jerome Zettelmeyer, director at Bruegel. Many of you know very well his seminal work, remarkable analysis and proposals on that restructuring and that relief. And also my PhD work nearly two decades decades ago was inspired by Jerome Means work. We are all aware that, that vulnerabilities in many countries are rising significantly and that servicing that is becoming more and more difficult at the expense of priority government spending. So we're very much look forward uh, to hearing from Jerome what can be done in the context of rising vulnerabilities that are more complex creditor structure. So without any further ado now, Sarah Jane, my question to you is, what would we 20 member, members like to see change in the way international financing institutions serve them? Sarah Jane, over to you. It, um, thank you for the question. It, it just started raining, so I hope my, my internet doesn't get um, disrupted. Um, so I, I prepared some slides uh, just to answer this question to share um, the uh, the perspectives coming from the V20 in terms of their expectations. So if we go to the next slide um, and the next one. Um, so the V20 ministers, uh, as you rightly pointed out, uh, now represent 68 countries and 1.74 billion people. Um, it's clear that the global financial system is ill-equipped to deal with the climate crisis and 
data shows that it's just disproportionately impacting climate vulnerable countries, having lost more than half a trillion dollars over the last two decades. So the V20 nations face a double burden, the limited resources to address climate impacts and then debt burdens that stifle sustainable development. Um, traditional financial tools such as high cost loans, uh, short term financing uh, and using solutions of, of austerity measures for financial shocks to deal with physical shocks make the problems worse instead of solving them. Um, and the rigidity of conventional financing, along with conditionalities that don't consider the unique climate challenges of the V20, hinders ability to focus on long-term resilience um, and adaptation strategies. Um, so it's clearly time to transform the financial system to prioritize uh, climate resilience. Um, so I'll quickly share the Accra to Marrakesh agenda of the V20 finance ministers, um, and there are four points. Um, so one is that it's time to make debt work for climate. Sub-Saharan African countries are at the forefront of the battle against a deepening debt distress and climate vulnerability. Our estimates show that um, early debt servicing costs from 2022 to 2028 for the region will reach about 80% of annual climate finance needs alone. And worse, the, the high cost of capital is pushing new financing further out of reach. Um, so this means that um, while collective progress towards achieving the sustainable goals remains slow and halting, uh, or it, it remains slow and halting um, at best. Um, and so it's time to reform the debt architecture to support climate vulnerable distressed countries to gain access to debt relief in a predictable, efficient and timely manner in a way that leverages new funding and resilience. Um, equally important is credit enhancement that should accompany debt restructuring, and we need guarantees and incentives such as debt service standstills that encourage the participation of all creditor classes for speedy resolution of debt uh, negotiations. Um, debt restructuring today is a little too late, uh, too unpredictable, and too divorced from development and climate realities. Um, as I know that the, the IMF is also in the room, um, critical to this is also to refine the debt sustainability analysis um, to ensure that it takes into account um, climate finance needs um, and also uh, that we work on making available liquidity options for countries. Uh, there may be opportunities for climate contingent swap lines between central banks. Um, on the Further to the um, international financial reform agenda, um, uh, as the moderator mentioned, it's clear that we need to massively scale up multilateral development bank resources. Um, and it's clear that we need to immediately increase uh, external low cost financing for SDGs and climate action. Um, so uh, there are two arenas of focus um, for the V20. One is ensuring the financial sustainability of the IMF's um, various trust funds through enhanced pledges. Um, and two, scaling up towards the tripling of available resources in the World Bank's IDA through donor contributions, IDA bonds, balance sheet optimizations. It's clearly not an impossible task. I'm sure many of you have seen the report and, and perhaps the article um, that came out recently that shows that IBRD and IDA could boost lending to nearly $900 billion if rating agencies changed their processes and modified the allowance they make for callable capital. Um, the V20 also continues to advocate for improved access to the IMF Resilience and Sustainability Trust by removing the requirement of concurrent IMF programs to enable countries uh, that need financing uh, easier access. 
Um, in terms of um, SDRs in general, uh, the V20 is also calling for the normalization of rechanneling of SDRs to MDBs to facilitate new borrowing up to four times uh, the SDR value. Um, already today, it's clear that MDBs and bilateral partners can work to adapt the entirety of their lending and project portfolios, uh, while also ensuring that no project they undertake today is without adaptation uh, and resilience. Um, because failing to take into account climate risk today is, is simply irresponsible. Um, and if we go to the next slide uh, on carbon financing, uh, the V20 is calling for a new global deal on carbon finance to realize the, the goals of the Paris Agreement in the near term. Um, so internationally traded mitigation outcomes present an opportunity. Um, this can be this can have uh, new options for countries uh, in terms of having funding funding streams um, to contribute to either uh, to sink or to avoid emissions. Um, and if we go to the next slide, we can see that there's an opportunity for 10 gigatons of carbon exchange. Um, and there's also an opportunity for the IMF and other actors to become carbon banks to safeguard macroeconomic stability by recognizing natural capital assets where these internationally traded mitigation outcomes can be credited to debt repayments. Um, on risk management, the global financial system must clearly improve the menu of options to, to support with um, finance ministers' risk management options, um, and also to drive new adaptation and loss and damage resources. Um, scaling up uh, prearranged and trigger-based funds and finance uh, can improve predictability. Um, however, the architecture we have today is really nowhere near resource to cover the entire spectrum of loss and damage. Um, we're seeing innovations in parametric instruments um, and uh, payouts that could be used to uh, address displacement, um, food security, or instruments that could enhance debt sustainability. Um, but all in all, we need more funds, speedier access, scale, and coordination that doesn't put the burden on the most vulnerable. I also like to take this opportunity to share some perspectives on the just energy transition. Um, Important points include social protection for those who will lose their jobs um, due to the transition, low costs and long-term financing for renewables to match the phasing down and eventually the phasing out of fossil fuels. Many developing countries across the V20 members um, are uh, saddled with legacy liabilities um, from fossil fuel generation. Uh, and so it would be important that strategies um, that are put in place support with countries being able to secure renewable energy technologies while dealing with legacy liabilities. Grid modernization is also a critical component and the opportunity to participate in transition and critical minerals. Um, and if we go to the next and final slide, um, climate uh, the V20 countries are also pursuing climate prosperity plans. Um, and this is specifically... Uh, to illustrate that by investing in climate, uh, by in development positive climate action, they can reach debt sustainability. Um, and so there's an opportunity for MDBs and bilateral partners to support with project preparation and deal team partnerships to realize the aspirations of their climate prosperity plans. Um, we can be working together on catalytical deals that unlock new sources of long-term capital or be crucial in changing market economics towards viability, um, such as limiting risk, uh, enabling price discovery, um, and supporting uh, future system design. 
Um, I think all in all, to conclude, the goal really is not to survive the climate crisis. The landing zone desired for the V20 is prosperity. Um, and that uh, the coalition of 68 climate vulnerable countries whose emissions together are equal or larger than India can contribute to a durable global decarbonization faster and earlier. Um, and with that, I'll stop there. Thanks. Sarah Jane, thank you so much. I mean, you, you told us the, how you like the system, uh, the international financial system to change. We need more, more money, and that's a key message coming up from the um, independent expert group of tripling finances, uh, but it's also about the speedier, faster kind of delivery. That's a very kind of important point to stress. Uh, incorporating climate risk in every kind of project, uh, um, that's a kind of a clear, clear message and investing in project preparation. So I'm kind of leaving with this kind of four points and you kind of talked about uh, um, the, cli the climate prosperity plan and it's a kind of a nice actually introduction to talk about uh, the Just Energy Transition Partnership in, in, in Senegal. And uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier on, uh, um, Musa, you've been working uh, tirelessly on the JetB in your country to support the green transition. And uh, this type of platforms are relatively new, but they can have a transformative impact. And uh, can you tell us a bit more about the objective of the JetB in Senegal, how it works, and more importantly, what role international development partners are playing at the moment? Well, Lisa, thank you very much. And I will. Uh says the opportunity to just uh, continue on where uh, my colleague just left um, and let me allow me just to, to to set the context for Senegal so it's going to show how critical this uh, this JP is and how uh, I mean how, how critical we we really need to have this this financing constraints uh, got got away so in Senegal of course the country is facing multiple crises but we do have on top of that two specific issues which is the, the regional security problem and, and also this difficult um, access to, uh, to, to, to capital market. And in, in that context, the, the government of Senegal has um, committed itself to this just uh, energy transition. Um, uh, the first objective is to uh, kind of improve our energy mix. This is one of our focus, investment focus, because this is going to help us you know, phase out of this uh, fossil fuel energy production uh, scheme that we have now, but also it's gonna be our fair share contribution to lowering the global warming, which is the uh, world target of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. So in, in order to do that, the uh, the work that has been done in, in our collaboration with most of our uh, technical and financial partners, including also the DFIs, the, the private sectors, and, uh, and all other financing companies, is to evaluate what are the needs, what are the needs that uh, the, the, the financial needs to kind of finance uh, this transition, the, the, the transition towards cleaner energy, the partnership, but what also is needed from other donors in terms of technical uh, and uh, in terms of in terms of technical assistance to help uh, make this JetP or just transition and just energy transition partnership uh, come alive. Uh, in terms of financing, the, the, the amount that was identified, uh, our partners that we have for now, in terms of pledges, as pledges were made, but what we have seen is that as, as always, we always have a lot of pledges on goodwill, but the problem is when it's, when it's time to tap the pocket, uh, we do not see much 
of, of, of the people. And there is a consequence to the status quo. There's a consequence of no action. And among other um, actions that we, we will have to see in this just energy transition partnership is that um, we may not have energy transition at all, or the energy transition gonna be unfair because the reality is in some developing countries, those countries who uh, contribute the least to the global warming should not be the one who pays the burden of this of no action or status quo. And the status quo, as I said, will be coming from, you know, pledges that are not fulfilled. And that's one. And the second one is <clears throat> the constraints. You know, the, the, the financial, the capital markets is getting more and more constraint. Monetary policy have reached its, its limits. And we have uh, many, many constraints on the fiscal policy side. I, I'm not talking about the daily challenges that we're having with, with the economy. You know, you need to close your infrastructure gap. You need to invest in education. You need to invest in health. And on top of that, you need to embrace this route of transitioning towards cleaner or greener energy. And not to say that you do not have universal energy in your country. So that, that is problematic. So you need to finance that. And on top of that, you need to have uh, additional money to you know, uh, finance this uh, transition towards greener energy. So as I was saying, so you have that constraint. So, and in the JetP, you have just, which means the partnership needs to be just, it needs to be fair. And as I said, um, those who maybe uh, contribute more those who have higher greenhouse gas emission maybe should do more efforts in helping those countries who wants uh, i mean the countries who want not to to uh, to to have a higher greenhouse gas emission help them invest in greener technology help them invest in greener infrastructure and if that is not done i mean not done in like next five to ten years but now because you know it, it it's critical. Uh, so as I said, there will be no transition at all, or the transition is going to be unfair. So that's the first one, and the second one is uh, you have all these uh, negative externalities that's coming from the global warming that all of us have seen, and this is having uh, dramatic consequences. For example, in countries like I mean, we're foreseeing that because in countries like Senegal, Senegal have seven hundred and fifty kilometers of coastal border. And it is one of the most advanced country in the Atlantic Ocean in West Africa. So you, you can you can picture the consequences that you know this this global warming and the the changing in this environment is going to have in, in in our country. So you you need to be to be tackling the financing the the financing issue for the green energy transition, but also you need to uh, kind of be uh, very. Uh, I mean, very creative in finding solution to finance your mitigation and you know your the the the, the climate the, the other climate effects. So, uh, of course, the development finance institutions has a lot um, to do. Just recently, the IMF developed RST um, uh, is one of the tools that the, the IMF has put together. But this is this may not be sufficient. And as always, what we have seen with with these type of institutions is that. Um, Everything that we say in ODI stays in ODI. Uh, well, <laughs> so, uh, let's say what happened. <laughs> no, I, 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 I said, <laughs> no, no, this, this, this is just a joke. But I, I, this is this was to say that um, 
you, you all know this joke where we have diagnosis that there was a lot of committees in this uh, in this ministry and we need to you know streamline the committee and what they did is set up another committee to try to streamline the committee the number of the committee so we don't want to fall in that trap you know with some other you know financing institutions and and, and development partners that you know we know them where the money is and we need just to go and tap the money but not be waiting there and, and we, we cannot wait we cannot wait anymore so we know the consequences we, we are seeing this consequences coming so we need to be proactive otherwise we're gonna be the one you know uh, facing the consequences or we may not have the actions or what is needed to face the consequences of this of this jetp uh, of this uh, needed uh, um, energy energy transition and the other consequences which where i'm gonna stop is if you do not have this financing either in in minister of finances uh what you're gonna see is that it's not complicated you do not have two options you have you, you only have one and money is not falling from the sky so either you're gonna uh, reduce your priority spending as i was mentioning or you will not be investing in those um actions or policies or measures that are needed you know to tackle those issues that you are seeing coming and it's going to have a lot of consequences including on your macro side because sometimes that's what we do not see we are focusing on the climate uh, on the climate aspect but those climate aspect as imf is saying is becoming macro critical and if it's macro critical that means it's going to have um uh, they're going to have consequences on the whole economy so you're going to have you're going to have um i mean difficulties on having growth sustainable growth you're going to have consequences with your debt you're going to have you're going to have a difficulty have problems with every uh, other sectors of your economy so that's why you wanted to set the context uh, speak a little bit about what it, what needs to be done and more importantly the consequences of the no action of the status quo so it's going to stop it there Thank you so much. I think uh, we need to recall the urgency of investment and need to kind of act now, even though um, perhaps the kind of long, lo the horizon might be kind of much longer term. We really need to act now. I mean, we heard about the JetP, particularly, I mean, there are a number of pledges that are not kind of going through. That's, we heard it kind of uh, loud and clear. Um, and I know also in my experience across the different JetPs, I mean, uh, a key feature of these structures is the pooling of concessional finance. We heard this not enough, uh, and sometimes not enough to attract our other private uh, investors. Uh, and we know that concessional finance, uh, we, um, it, it's a kind of a live motive throughout this session, is a scarce resource. But we need to expand the pie and we need more concessional finance and also we need to make what we have more effective. It feels at times a tall order, especially when the bilateral donors are themselves under tight fiscal pressure. Are we stuck or do we have solutions to mobilize more concessional finance and allocate it more effectively to address a rising number? of challenges and also more severe challenges. A very kind of easy question for you, Kalpana. Can you, can you share some of your thoughts, particularly from your work on, on climate and development and the white paper? Over to you, Kalpana. Thank you, Annalisa. Before I do that, though, fun fact, there's all three of your panelists here have some association with the IMF. So just, I don't know, that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um... <laughs> we all left. <laughs> <laughs> that's true 
Um, anyway, thank thank you, Annalisa, and thank you, ODI, for the for the opportunity to speak at this panel. And as there's been a lot of discussion about um, you know what ministries of finance themselves can do over the last couple of days. So it's good that we're talking about what needs to happen in the global development finance uh, space uh, to relieve what Abe called yesterday the big funding squeeze. Um, um, and 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 you know we've been hearing that also from other. I wanted to talk about maybe four things. Uh, the first one, I think, is just to put a, some structure on the, the whole debate between uh, climate and development, what is the priority, how to fund it, and so on. Um, and we've heard it already in this room just now. Um, the second thing I want to talk about a little bit is on Ida. And um, and again, uh, Sarah, you, you said something about it, and I'll pick up. The third thing is a little bit about debt restructuring, but I won't I'll leave the bulk of that to Jeremy because that's what he's going to talk about. And maybe if we have time, I'll, I'll say a little bit about what developing countries themselves need to do to, to um, uh, bring in the longer term inflows that are needed. Right. So, so first on the on the the dilemma of you know we need to spend on all of these things. So it's it's certainly true what you said how you started with Larry saying the world is on fire. I mean, the thing is. We are no longer at the point where you can think about one uh, development and climate in sequence. You know, we'll do one thing first, and all of this is upon us now. We no longer have the luxury of saying we'll sequence these. They all need to be uh, addressed urgently. And every country in the world, whether you're large, small, advanced, developing, you know, you are now faced with completely reorienting every aspect of economic activity um, um, in your you know, the way everything is conducted. And in the, at the same time, again, whether you're large, small, advanced or developing, you also have to make sure you're uh, providing for the needs of your population. We're seeing that tension play out right here in this in this country as we speak. Um, so, so we need a framework to think about that acknowledges both the need to, to tackle climate challenges as well as completing the unfinished and actually probably now slightly larger job of poverty reduction and and uh, and development so what we did in the uh, ahead of the paris summit was we we tried to put down a framework that says uh the way to think about this is not is to really differentiate between countries countries have very differing needs and 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 um sarah this goes to your um the v20 proposal of you know your platforms or your country prosperity plans or there's various incarnations of it but in any case it is it's it's one way to think about it is that there are groups of countries that need different things what are they you have you know uh, low income and possibly low emission countries you have low and middle income countries that are also high emitters mine being one of them you have small island states that are that are have their own problems and then you have advanced countries that are that that might have um, the problem of urgently decarbonizing. So, you know, where exactly you draw the line around these matrices is is, is up to discussion. But conceptually, you can have this these uh, buckets four, five, whatever it is. And then when we said based on this, we 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 thought that you could think about what types of financing is best suited to deal with these problems. So you're not fighting over the same bucket of financing for everything, right? I mean, so um, there's a limited number of there's a limited amount of concessional resources. We, I will, in my next breath, I'm going to talk about IDA and how we're going to urge donors to be more generous. 
but realistically, there's going to be a limited amount of resources. So our thinking was from just based on economic first principle, where where is a concessional money best suited because no other money is going to go in there and where is um, where can you possibly get you know private money or other or less concessional money to go in and i think unless you think about it in those terms a you're never going to get through the dilemma of what money should go where and b you actually aren't going to be able to finance anything because it's finance everything because it just isn't enough money to go around so that was the framework that we put uh, together in the white paper it's when I when I hear myself saying it, it seems blindingly obvious, but it, it felt like we had we were making some kind of contribution. We're now going. We're actually writing something uh, um, as a follow up to that to try and dig in a little bit deeper. We uh, hope to have that ready uh, by the time uh, of COP. There's actually some very interesting work that Norway just. Uh, a paper that Nor the Nor NORAD had put out in May of this year that starts to talk about this, um, an exercise where they talked about what kind of donor funding, their own funding would go for what, what sources. So it is being, I think it's, it's being thought about and more countries need to do that. And actually the World Bank itself needs to do that. The World Bank, I think cannot, one of the points that we need to make to them is that you can't, they can't really tr be everything to everyone and they can't, solve all of the problems in all the countries, which is a little bit of what the bank, the way the bank operates now and has to be much more selective of what it does in each country. The second point I wanted to make relates to the need for a robust replenishment of IDA. Um, you know, um, there's the PRGT as well in the IMF, which the trust I believe is now fully funded, but a subsidy account is not. But let me just leave that aside for a minute. IDA is unique in its leverage, its concessionality, the breadth, and, and it really warrants special consideration. Um, unlike most bilateral aid agencies and other vertical funds, IDA is leveraged, you know, where, where it can make uh, something like four times uh, the amount of money uh, available for every donor dollar. And, um, and it is the essential counterfactual Counter-cyclical, counter-factual, counter-cyclical financing uh, provider. Uh, no other institution really is scaled up to do that. So, you know, it's funded through donor contributions, as as we were talking about, Annalisa, a little while ago. Um, if you the last four replenishments, donor contributions have been flat in nominal terms. If you go back a couple of replenishments before that, it's declined in nominal terms. People have, in this room have used the term shameful a few times, and maybe that applies here as well. Um, we've had on, on the plus side, I guess we've had uh, the, the biggest declines, by the way, have been in the G7 countries. Uh, some new donors have come in China, Saudi, Korea and stuff, but they haven't been able to really make up for um, um, what um, the declines that you've seen before. Um, so. And then actually there was a very, I have to make a plug for a paper that was written by one of our partners at FDL. Uh, but they, the, the paper that they wrote points out to, uh, points to the debt situation being really costly to IDA because now it's being forced to switch from loans to grants uh, as countries, more and more countries move into, higher, uh, into debt distress or at high risk of debt distress. And, um, and in fact, a lot of what IDA's loans are be, that are going to these countries are being used to repay other creditors. So it's it's uh, it's it's a really interesting paper if you haven't seen it. 
So anyway, it's time to call for a very strong replenishment of IDA. We will, we are certainly will be taking some of our cues from the work that you all did, Annalisa, for the in the high level group in G20. But we are calling for an increase of at least uh, fifty percent in donor contributions uh, in the coming replenishments. And the third point I want to make, as I said briefly, is on the is on the debt situation. I mean, right now what we have in the sovereign debt restructuring process is is unwieldy, time consuming, and really kind of not working very well. Uh, and I know I know Jamin will talk about this, but. Um, it's and and we we've told ourselves and and it's certainly true that we're not at you know we're not a systemic this is not a systemic debt crisis but tell that to the countries that are that are um you know having to make really difficult choices each each uh each time they every month uh, in many cases so yes we're not in a systemic debt crisis but to me that does that's that's a really poor excuse to have a have a system that just doesn't work so um but Jeremy, you'll say something about that and we can talk about it after. But, and then the fourth thing I wanted to say was, you know, we haven't talked about what's, um, what's in the control of developing countries to do. And that is really to put, your, put the economic house in order, governance reform, those don't cost money. Everybody knows what to do. And there is no more sustainable de-risking strategy than than putting your uh, you know getting your institutions right and with numerous examples, including from countries that I worked on a lot in Asia, which 20 years ago would have been very similar to many countries in say Africa, and now are you know in a completely different situation. A lot of it is because they they did the hard work of doing the institution building and governance improvement. So I'll stop there. Annalisa, over to you. Thank you so much. I mean, you touch upon uh, the different kind of financing mix, uh, that restructuring, uh, and I also would like to kind of make the point around IDA. I mean, IDA is a very effective way for bilateral donors to invest their own resources. I mean, Kalpana mentioned the, I mean, out of every dollar, now we are last replenishment won 23 billion uh, of donor contributions. They've been able to leverage 93 billion. Uh, and we need to remember these are this is predictable financing for three years and for long-term development. So instead of a kind of uh, $1 in, $1 out, that's a really, really kind of good investment. So Jeremy, we talked a lot about concessional finance, it's not a lot, uh, and many countries have been borrowing from international capital markets. Uh, but even for countries with market access, the pressure on that service is mounting and refinancing is becoming more challenging than ever before. And we spoke about, I mean, we really need to kind of invest at scale to tackle the most pressing challenges that we have and with urgency. But many countries cannot afford to borrow more or at a faster space. So what can be done to give finance ministers a sort of breathing space? Why are that restructuring so difficult to achieve right now? Over to you, Jeronim. Right, so, I mean, of course, the way to think of debt restructuring is as the last resort, no, rather than mm -hmm. uh, breathing space. Um, no finance minister I, I know likes to uh, likes to restructure. Uh, so let me let me sort of take you through the argument by showing you a few slides. Let me first uh, re remind you of how um, emerging market and developing economies debt restructurings are supposed to work, and then why why it's not working as it's. Uh, supposed to work. So 
very simply put, the, the standard template is, you know, a debtor country runs out of money, uh, approaches the IMF. Uh, the IMF, if it deems a debt to be unsustainable, uh, will not lend unless, uh, depending on the debt structure, one or both of these conditions are satisfied. So if the debt um, uh, that is unsustainable includes a significant share of official and bilateral creditors, the fund needs something called credible and specific financing assurances. Financing assurances is a misleading term that it really means debt restructuring uh, assurances. <clears throat> and then with respect to uh, private creditors, the fund, the fund needs something rather less onerous, namely merely a thing called a credible process. Uh, and and that, that is a pretty low bar. So if, if a finance minister calls financial advisors, makes an announcement that a debt restructuring will be sought from the private creditors, that's normally enough for the fund uh, to go ahead with lending. So, so the country does these uh, things, the uh, official creditors provide these uh, credible and specific debt restructuring assurances. And again, at this point, this only means sort of a, a general um, understanding that debt will be restructured in line with the IMF or IMF World Bank debt sustainability uh, analysis, and, and then the IMF lends, right? So that's, that's how it works. And, you know, traditionally, this hasn't worked so badly. And one of the reasons is because the Paris Club provided a pretty effective forum to coordinate the, the official creditors. Okay, now what's, what's more difficult now than it used to be? So, I mean, I have to give the, the title of this conference a nod, but it will only be a nod, then I will uh, move on. So, so the age of polycrisis does complicate things because it, it introduces something you might call exceptional uncertainty. And so, obviously, it's easy for things to go wrong. It's easy for the IMF to get needed debt relief wrong, for the DSAs just to be too little or maybe too much and, and then too hard to actually get the debt relief. Uh, it's harder for IMF programs to address what is sort of a constitutional requirement for IMF lending, which is to address the so-called medium-term balance of payments problem. So if there are huge real problems out there that are not actually under the control of the, uh, of the debtor country that's coming to the IMF, the IMF really cannot lend, right? And so that was the situation in Ukraine for example. Uh, and, and so the IMF tried very hard to sort of adapt its framework to make it more flexible to deal with these uh, situations of exceptional uncertainty. And of course, you know, you can accuse it of hypocrisy or the main shareholders of hypocrisy because the IMF did for Ukraine what it would not have done uh, for other countries in a similar situation. But it, the whole thing had a, a huge positive spillover because it did it by changing its policies. Now, it can uh, benefit others, uh, others too. Under the proviso that this requires enormous uh, degree of shareholder support, right? So, so the IMF can do extraordinary things if most of its shareholders uh, back it. Okay, but the thing that I want to focus on is the second point, which is changes in creditor structure, uh, which make that hard to restructure. And so there are two points here. There is the, the, the China and sort of non-Paris um, club bilateral uh, creditors that have hugely gained significance. But then the other one, which is sort of slightly less appreciated, is, is the increasing share of multilaterals. And in some sense, that's even more difficult to address than, uh, than the China issue. Um, 
Okay, so, so this is really the tough nut to crack. So let me show you one chart before I say what, what one can try to do. So this is just the, from the World Bank, uh, debt statistics uh, from a credit reporting system, just the total in uh, billions of US dollars of public external debt from low income countries. So it's maybe about 70 countries or so, just the aggregate. And basically what, you know, this starts in 2000, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you just see it getting a lot more colorful, right? Um, and that colorfulness is, in a sense, in a way it's good. I mean, there are more diverse sources of funding, of debt, but exposed when you're trying to restructure it, it's, it's a problem because you have, you have all these different creator groups that have different interests and you need to sort of get them all on board. Of course, not every uh, low-income country has all these creditors, but, but many have. Um, and, you know, the remarkable thing is, is this yellow um, area here. This is China. So China surpassed the Paris Club, the entire Paris Club. So all Paris Club members together as an official creditor in 2015, when its uh, share of total external debt of LICs surpassed about 15%. And the Paris Club maybe was 12, 13%. Now, uh, uh, China has actually scaled back its new lending quite a lot. So now in the last year or so, the Paris Club is again slightly bigger than, than China. But again, this is the total of the Paris Club. So it's good. they've gone from maybe 15% to about 12, uh, 12%. And then what, what you also see is sort of this light blue area at the bottom, right? This light blue area at the bottom is the multilateral creditors, including the IMF. And this has also gone up uh, a lot on average. It's still um, you know, in the order of maybe 55% maybe not too terrible, but then uh, I, I looked, uh, and last time I looked, there were about 20 low-income countries that owe, actually owe more than two-thirds of their external debt to multilaterals. Now, that's a problem because this debt is, in principle, unrestructurable. And so if, if you are going to be insolvent, if you are insolvent, then, you know, a 30%, 40% haircut in NPV terms is pretty standard. It's kind of average. So that means that if you're not going to touch the multilaterals, you have to write down the entire outstanding <laughs> debt of the rest, and that's the others are not going to like that, right? So that really locks these uh, debt has become very hard to to restructure. So what can one do about it? So let me take sort of the China issue and the multilateral creditors uh, separately. So in the case of China, we had sort of a very brave um, attempt to uh, fix this, and this came out of the pandemic, the debt suspension. Service suspension initiative and the idea to sort of take this spirit of G20 cooperation and apply it to deep debt relief rather than just pushing out some maturities. Uh, and, and so, you know, it was pretty bold. It was very difficult to negotiate. Uh, the memo that's out there that you can read, it's a two page memo. It's pretty thin. It's full of holes. The holes are deliberate because they reflect just the need to get uh, all the G20 uh, on board. And so, you know, it's been certainly disappointing that you said that, uh, but you cannot say that it was a complete failure, right? So there has been some slow progress. So of the, I mean, first of all, very few countries have applied, mm. right? So in that sense, that's already kind of a warning, uh, a red flag. Among the countries that have applied, you know, we, we have now after three years of trying gotten somewhere in, in two cases, so two cases are done, Chad and Zambia. Now, Chad wasn't very uh, deep. Zambia was the sort of the big one. 
uh, and that was, I think, quite remarkable, what was achieved. And then with Ghana, we, we got to the financing assurances stage, but not yet, as far as I'm uh, aware, the, the real thing. Okay, so then the other uh, problem is that, of course, the common framework only covers uh, about 70 low-income countries. It doesn't cover Sri Lanka, it doesn't cover Suriname, it doesn't cover many other countries. And, and so here there's been some attempt to coordinate outside the common framework, and this is, being, is more difficult than inside the common framework, but it, it can be done. And, and basically, if cooperation inside the common framework improves, then that probably has some spillovers for coordination outside it. Now, the, the important thing is, it, it's really not useful for everyone to bash the common framework because the common framework is not the problem. The common framework is just a, a document in the process that tries to address an underlying problem. And that underlying problem is incentives, geopolitics, distrust, right? So the, the, it has to do with internal incentives of Chinese lenders. The, the, it's not a very restructuring friendly culture there that has to do with the organization of the Chinese state with coordination failures inside uh, China with worries that if you are going to give a lot of debt relief that means that you made huge mistakes in, in the first place no one wants to admit these uh, these types of mistakes and then but fundamentally it's also about uh, uh, distrust not just between the US and China but be, you know essentially China being now the largest creditor does not think that it necessarily has to buy into the system that the world that the West has developed to do the restructuring right and the essential part that's so difficult uh, for China is this notion that there is a delegated agency. The IMF or in the case of low income countries, the IMF and the World Bank jointly that decide on how much debt relief is needed that you sort of delegate this momentous decision rather than having control over it and negotiating it at once no and so and this problem was resolved in the memorandum that constitutes the common framework by having this formulation that you know the the debt relief would be granted in line with the imf dsa uh, imf uh, world bank dsa and the creditors collective assessment this is this is the magic words that were found, I think, by Guillaume Chabert uh, to to solve this problem, and you know that's that's been the magic uh, word so far. But it's a, it's a game, right? Do we completely delegate to the IMF? No, we really don't. But then we have to, right? And and so it requires essentially convincing the Chinese side, case by case, that the deal is not too debtor friendly, right? That's the fundamental point. They. They are, you know, they, their foreign policy is data friendly. Their financial decisions are not necessarily data friendly if they are on the on the credit side. Okay, so they, with what we do about multilateral uh, credit, so obviously, you know, if this gets bad enough, and so here I'm sort of with a group of current and former IMF people saying it's not yet as bad as it was in the 1990s, just before HIPIG, there's still a little bit of room to go, but you know, we are, get, we are getting there. If it gets bad enough, then, you know, of course, ultimately the multilateral creditors will have to be restructured, right? And it's gonna probably take the form of another MDRI type thing. Now, the difficulty is that for the same reasons why coordination within the common framework is so difficult, pulling off an MDRI is gonna be a bloody nightmare. I mean, you're not, remember, we were in an exceptional the propitious political situation in advanced countries in the late 90s. This was sort of the triumph of the West, the triumph of globalization, the triumph of Gordon Brown. So this combination between the, you know, the, the West feeling very secure and, and feeling sort of 
inclined to show some generosity and of course having to recognize that these countries would never be able to repay right it was it was in some sense the perfect moment to do this this is not going to uh, come back so what else can can you do so one obvious thing is keep the number of multilaterals from growing because that's also a problem and there are more and more institutions that what would like this mantle to be protected and so here I, I have I take a little bit of credit for that it was part of an IMF paper the 2022 review of arrears policies where the objective was to do that and we got into big trouble with some big very big lenders who want to be multilaterals and we said you're not right and I'm not going to uh, uh, speak about uh, speak about that uh, so it's difficult it can be done but you cannot of course the stock is still there uh, finally, you one thing you can do, right, and that's sort of the pragmatic thing to do is, even if MDBs cannot restructure, you can use grant contributions to quasi restructure. But if you're doing that, you're competing with that precious item money, right? You you don't you cannot give this new money for new projects, right? You have to do it to effectively pay back yourself. And this is the reason why the World Bank and particularly the people uh, working on IDA always hated this idea because they didn't want their precious IDA round to be to be uh, sort of subverted for, for for this reason. But it may be the only reason. Okay, just to uh, throw out three more ideas since this was supposed to be about architecture of useful architecture reform related to debt restructuring. Obviously, I'm in favor of debt contracts that envisage some sort of automatic re uh, debt relief in response to certain events. This is a super old idea. It was there in the 1980s already. It's now come back in the form of uh, climate resilient debt uh, contracts. Still a good idea, and it's it's a bit more accepted now. Uh, to go to Sarah Jane and the V20, in, in countries with very high climate risks, uh, there is probably scope uh, to condition debt relief on ad adaptation investment. Why is that a, a good idea? So rather than the standard macro conditionality on actual adaptation investment, the reason is that because you know if you have this investment, it makes these the the, the debtor more solvent in the future, and then you it actually makes sense for the creditors to give bigger uh, debt relief. And then finally, the holy grail, I think, for these very highly indebted countries is, is for, for these very high officially indebted countries is consider non-debt created forms of official development finance. So some sort of equity type instrument, first loss tranches, not guarantees because those are hard again, right? And, and the idea is that you basically use official money to suck in more private debt, which is less hard to, uh, to restructure. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. So we are moving to the kind of uh, um, Q&A kind of side. I also would like to encourage those online to kind of uh, raise their questions in the online chat. Uh, also, while people are gathering your thoughts, I would like uh, to have another plug-in. I mean, I remember Shakira Mustafa with us and Chris Humphrey, one of our senior associates, actually reflected on this kind of trade-off at either land or suspend. I mean, we are in a situation where should the IFIs expand their lending or trying to kind of uh, finance that relief it's an either and or and then the question is that what will kind of deliver the kind of greatest impact so this is a kind of a very lively question on where to uh where to prioritize scarce again concessional finance so any questions in the room uh, who wants to break the ice uh, well tom This is a question for, for Jerome in. and um, 
the point about the, the low-income countries that owe, owe a lot to the multilaterals. Um, setting up something like an MDRI Mark II, is this something you would want to see some donors working on now so that it's ready if the crisis hits, so the instrument is there, um, rather than, you know, it hits, then you wait five, ten years for the negotiations to happen to be set up. So that, that, that's one part. And the second part of the question is, you, you go through all the reasons why it's difficult. I mean, what one advantage is that these are low-income countries, by global standards, they're relatively small economies. Um, you know, we've got the large risks of a Trump presidency um, or Trump election win next year, and God knows what that would do to any kind of US participation in it, solving any, any global issues. So given the size of the economies and not it, the, the problem in kind of monetary terms not being overwhelmingly large, is this something that European donors, would include the UK and the European donors, could come together and try and find a solution to solve themselves? Thank you. Are there any questions? Because uh, I would love to take a group of three. Yes, over there. This is by far more depressing than um, yesterday's poly crisis uh, discussion. Um, so donors are talking big. They were talking big after the Afghanistan rebuilding events and uh, Iraq rebuilding, and they're still talking big about uh, climate fund, uh, climate financing, and there's very little coming through. Uh, combine that with the picture we've just seen, how difficult it is to restructure and give haircuts, which were, in Argentina's case, um, precipitous and uh, a lot has changed since then. Uh, combine that with very bad R-G dynamics, which we haven't spoken about much today or yesterday. So it seems like what is really on the table is self-financing, which is difficult in a low-growth environment, and structural reforms to engender more growth and more revenue for self-financing. Is that a pretty clear synopsis, with the exception of some of the tinkering on the margin for, for architecture? Um, uh, yeah, to German in particular, I uh, would appreciate your thoughts on that. Any other questions? Uh, if not, can I, can I raise a kind of a question? I mean, Katana, you talked about IDA. What should we do to kind of raise the profile of, uh, of IDA? Are there any kind of uh, directions and instructions for us um, to contribute to that? So that's, uh, that's my kind of question. Jeremy, shall we talk about MDRI 2? Um, shall we start now? So, so it's always a good idea to prepare, right? The, the question is whether you do this uh, uh, in secret, in, in a drawer, right, or or more publicly. The, the problem is once you raise this, everything stops, right? And first, it is a source of moral hazard, and, and second, it will probably mean that uh, multilaterals stop lending to a whole bunch of potential MDR participants. Do we really want to do this at, at this point, right? I think it's you want to do this when you have a clear sense that it is that it is too late and and then also never forget that i mean i i i'm happy to be contradicted here but no country really likes debt restructuring i mean many many african countries have worked incredibly hard to have some form of market access they they're not going to throw this away and go back to the 90s right so it's it's, it's a difficult problem. On EU, UK, uh, yes, I mean, I, obviously, you know, if, if we, if we um, 
get a much less cooperative US, yes, then we will have to do it on, on our own, right? But, you know, <laughs> I've not given up. Observance <laughs> at eternal. And, and of course, there's one area where I think uh, we we really need the, the US on board and certainty with the, the present administration that will work. And that is the um, essentially climate action conditional financial transfers of the JetP of the JetP type, right? And I mean, here, here I think that there is a very interesting paper by a, a group of authors around Patrick Bolton and uh, Alisa Kleineinhus, which actually also inc includes Tobias uh, Adrian as an author that is essentially estimates the net welfare benefits from decarbonizing the, the power sectors, the energy sector, so essentially the welfare approach. And the main point in this paper, which is not brought out very well, but I want to write a policy brief where I point this out, is that it's so large that in some cases the EU and the UK on their own, but certainly the EU, UK, and uh, uh, the Americans, and you know Japan, Canada, Australia, if, if they can resolve the free riding among themselves, by operating together, it it would they would more than get their money's worth by essentially paying for decarbonization in in those uh, in those countries. Katana Onaida. Onaida. Um, so, Annalisa, you you're uh, I think the answer is you know we have to stay tuned. We're working on it. I think we realize. Yeah, we had a discussion yesterday actually with our co-chairs on this, but we realized that simply saying you need more, there needs to be even even the fundraising efforts that Ida has done, the bank has done is, you know, are generally very lackluster and, and not very inspiring. So maybe thinking already from that, the whole process, I think, needs to be rethought uh, and, and not rethought, re-energized, if you wish. But again, eyes wide open. I mean, you know, the politics are just not conducive to uh to to big replenishments we will need i think some of the work that you all have done some of the work that some of our other partners have done cgd and others will need to marshal all of those arguments and to try and make a strong pitch starting already from the midterm review in in, in december just to kind of also mention that the ida 21 replenishment process will start in january so this is a very kind of timely timely conversation of course our analysis analysis of how to stretch the envelope and expand it uh, will be there also to a certain extent uh, i came from delhi after we finalized the report of the independent expert group actually and i came back energized and optimistic about the future of the international financial architecture <laughs> so i'm really sorry if i haven't convened this kind of enthusiasm about that but it's uh let me let me just now read a question that came from perny herbs it's a kind of uh, uh let me read it through instead of kind of summarizing the magic wand especially post cop 2016 proposals appear to be guarantees, but I'm not convinced that they will be realized as what is being proposed on the box. A lot of this seems to be directed to the MDBs to increase ceilings for country lending. What will be required from debtor countries is not clear. The devil is in detail. Has any of this moved to discussion of what the contractual structure will look like? Fragmentation regarding implementation is also a challenge. The potential for a narrative regarding this is best practice to be the mantra was being best practice has not been established. I think this is a kind of a very much around the push on, on the guarantees. Anyone who wants to pick this up? I would, I think you should say something about that, particularly because in, in principle, JetPs Jet provide some sort of framework, no? But I, I really don't know how it works in practice. Uh, yeah. 
Go ahead. First, we'll say about in the time, uh, sergeant repairs. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing is, in 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 the in the JetP in the JetP framework, you have some of of course some guarantees that was um, that were given by some of the um, I mean the countries that are willing to kind of chip in this uh, financing financing box. But again, we do not have any uh, I mean any 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 framework that is clear. As for example, in the in the IRA replenishment, replenishment sorry uh, framework where everything is clear, etc. This is not the case for the JetP. JetP the JetP JET is a new initiative. Uh, I mean the new initiative, but um, you what 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 we have for now is pledge, but we do not even have. I mean, the countries do not agree amongst themselves on what need uh, in terms of financing envelope. What needs to be achieved? We do not have. We do not have. You know, a, a clear agreement at least for Senegal, and also we do not have agreement on. You know, if the financing is there, where that money should go. You know, mm -hmm. we we do know that it needs to finance the uh, transition toward greener mm -hmm. energy. Yet, you do not have the specifics. You do not have the details. So this mm -hmm. this this process is still. The work is still going um, ongoing on on this on this uh, initiative on the partnership, but yet we are still facing the same problem that we used to have when we uh, when it comes to having pledges and then uh, getting the money there when the money is needed. Because one of my questions would have been how can we how what development partners should do differently, and this is a kind of a clear point around following through kind of commitments. Sarah Jane, over to you. Uh, yeah, just a, a comment on guarantees. Um, it's it's clear that they've been slow, uh, and it it's in MDBs, and this is because of a variety of reasons. One is, um, the incentives are not aligned for MD for uh, staff and MDBs to actually um bring these bring guarantees to the finish line. Um, so there's a human uh, I guess a human capacity constraint in the MDBs. Um, the second thing uh, is that guarantees have been slow. Uh, and so I, I see uh, German's point about having equity, um, equity like uh, in instruments, um, as well as stop loss being a lot quicker than guarantees. Um, so it may be that uh, MDBs as part of their reform uh, to also upscale um, their human capacity, human capital to actually get these to the finish line. So, so my, my point about equity was, wasn't so much about speed, but just that in, in the end, you don't want, uh, il, il, you know, that, you know, indirectly money is owed to, uh, to, to multilaterals beyond what is already owed to them, right? So it's essentially equity is like a form of grants, right? But, but in a way that leverages private, private money. But I think that what the question is about is, is something else, which, which is, I mean, clearly, if if there's going to be if this is going to be the big channel, whether equity first loss guarantees doesn't matter. But if if the idea is some sort of public subsidy, right, yeah. that leverages private money, we have to be very careful how what we are going to subsidize, right? And and so they, I don't think there is a very strong framework out there yet. So w what is the problem? So you know, the problem could be some macro issues in in that country where in principle with the RST you, something like that you can handle that right but beyond that it's going to be like you know project selection after all this is supposed to be subsidizing private investment so you know Frederic is is there uh, nodding and we we worked at EBRD so 
I think I imagine this this would work a little bit like an SME credit line or something like that, right? So so you have a local bank or you have a local development bank that is charged with your actual project selection, and then you have the MDB give some sort of credit line that is subsidized to that local bank, and and then you need to build capacity to 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 select the right process. And of course, so that that's going to make it even longer, right, Sarah Jane, because it's not just about structuring this within the MDBs, but I think you need to create some sort of local institutional capacity to to actually spend this money money well. And I don't even know whether anyone has started doing that. I mean, I don't know much about MDBs. Samantha Asrich might have some kind of answers to that. Sam, over to you. Just on that very last point, there's a very good example, um, and that's PTSMI in Indonesia, which is a local development bank, and, and talking about kind of the jet the jet piece it has actually i think it's about a 3.2 billion blended fund which so that the first thing is actually it implies a very different way of working of mdbs and dfis actually giving up control and pooling the concessional finance at the country level and this is what's happening in indonesia and it's managed by ptsmi is about a 3.2 billion sdg fund and they also have a clean transmission mechanism to retire coal earlier so it's a very capable institution a development bank uh, which is highly integrated in country plans and vision so ownership and this idea if you like a kind of about the vision what's the pipeline what's needed to be financed what can government do how can they bring in the private sector and then a bank which has the capacity kind of to do this and as I say, it requires a very different way, I think, of MDBs and DFIs and how they engage to mobilize the private sector, which traditionally has been a kind of a ad hoc transactional scouting around for the odd kind of project and kind of giving it to the ownership of, of the country and its vision plan and its institutions to be able to deploy that capital. And the problem with the JETPs that I understand so far with the pledges is that so much is this pledge and actually a lot of it, they're thinking we're going to catalyze private money here, but there's no plan or vision on how that's going to be done. And the intricacies of that are quite complicated, but a good example, and I've done some work on it, PTSMI, great example to have a look at how this is, is being done, but you need a very capable government and institution um, to do it. Thank you, Sam, for giving us a kind of uh, a positive example. Uh, um, Kahala, over to you. And then I have a question from the online audience. Um, I, I guess it's from Musa, um, but um, others can chime in um, as well. I'm kind of new to the JetP thing. I'm not as up to date with, the, uh, <laughs> with it as uh, my other colleagues. Um, but I guess I might have some concerns that it's using up a country's human capabilities in particular within government um, and and struggling to get off the ground um and that those um uh, government assets um might be better deployed towards what we were talking about in the previous session with andres velasco a growth strategy but or maybe i'm just don't know enough about it and they're they're, they're actually the same thing jet peas are like the new growth strategy um for, for this era um so yeah interested to get your thoughts on that um can we just this is quite a key point Musa, would you like to reply 
directly. I mean, uh, it, it can be seen that way, but you, you, you may also, uh, you, you may not take it as, you know, as a clear new growth strategy as it, uh, I mean, a proper growth strategy. It's a part of, you know, the policy actions that, for example, again, for the case of Senegal, uh, we were already we were already working on you know improving our energy mix for example because as you may know in 2020 in 20, uh, 24 uh, Senegal is becoming an energy producing country for, for, um, with oil and gas so we had a whole um, what we call a gas to power strategy which is make um, moving from f uh, fossil fuel use uh, to produce uh, electricity to gas so and you know the commitments that we had in in this JP among others are to clean up our process of producing electricity for example so it's not a whole you know new growth trajectory but it's among other policies that was undertaken and then it's just been uh you know embedded in this uh, JP and then you know uh, it has this benefit of you know uh, contributing positively to the global warming emissions which is the uh, objective of you know the the jet thank you so can i check with the master of ceremonies if i can take five more minutes as we started five minutes later yes thank you so i have a i have a question at the back uh, please thank you so thank much you. uh my question relates to the fiscal rules and the questions raised by you about energy transition and fiscal transition there is a co-movement so how we can tackle this and make the finance ministry ready to tackle this challenge because fiscal transition and energy transition are just moving together one idea from government of india they have incorporated uh, you know the energy transition the power sector reforms as a part of the fiscal consolidation by linking a part of the extra borrowing space to power sector reforms so that's one way you know the government of india tried but what are the other ways in which we can try because center bank is not in a mood to get into this because they don't have tools so there is a reputation risk but bank of england and ecb they are leading the way but government of india and our center bank they are little shaky about it how they can enter into it so when monetary policy is limited in its scope uh, to integrate these concerns how can the finance ministry be ready to do this and also talk about the intergovernmental fiscal transfers in, in in india we have the finance commission coming up in november so we may incorporate a criteria in the tax devolution formula we already have but we may give a more weightage to the climate concerns and in november in dubai there will be articulation of the national adaptation communication so how can the finance ministries be prepared incorporating these challenges so it's it's to the panelist. Thank it's you. a very tough question. Anyone who wants to, Kalpana, can see. I'm not, I'm not sure I fully follow the question. Actually, so, um, so the, the 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 question is as as say let's say India is making its transition uh, to clean energy. What role can the finance ministry play? Is that is that what you're asking? And how it can be integrated in the fiscal rules framework and the fiscal consolidation. Ah, me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, why didn't you? Sorry, <laughs> oh, oh, maybe so. Uh, th these two is linked. F from my from my perspective, from my understanding, from the Minister of Finance, this, uh, these two are linked. Uh, for example, in the, 
in the in the energy transition uh if you if you take aside the the climate aspect of it uh, at the end it's supposed to um reduce the cost of energy and by saying cost of energy at the ministry of finance we're talking about subsidies and you if you're reducing subsidies you're getting your fiscal policy more sound and then that's the, that's that's the way that's how these two uh, these two terms to from my from my perspective from the perspective of the minister of finance are completely linked at, at least in the medium term in the in the in the short term it can be it can go the other way around because you're going to need more money to invest to have cleaner energy and that have that can have an impact on your fiscal uh, fiscal path uh, fiscal consolidation but toward the medium or long term definitely you're going to have uh, you know, a reduction in your costs of energy, and then it's gonna help your fiscal consolidation plan. It, it, it's a long term. Yeah. You're all dead. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to check uh, if Sarah Jane wants to come in uh, on this on this question. Uh, no, thank you. Shall I do? I have one more question from the online audience, and I have Frederic. Uh, are there any other? And 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 Rebecca, anyone else? Uh, Okay, so I'll do the one online because it's very close and then Frederic and Rebecca. So this question comes from Sherilyn Raga. She's a research fellow here at ODI, very, I think very close to my, to my previous experience. So is it a time to rethink about the relevance of the debt sustainability analysis and the role in unlocking finance during multiple crises? Debt sustainability is heavily anchored on fiscal adjustment, which have higher contractionary effects during shocks. Should the debt sustainability analysis also start to reflect alternative growth paths through a policy mix, for example, protecting investment while consolidating that can support growth and should give more confidence to international financing institutions to extend financing? Jeremy, probably that's for so, you. Thanks. Yeah, so, so, so in, in principle, DSAs are supposed to be forward looking and take into account, you know, long-term growth effects, um, prevented output costs from uh, natural disasters and, and so forth. And, um, uh, you know, for low-income countries, it's a 20-year horizon. For um, uh, market access countries at the, at the uh, fund, uh, there's normally a 10-year horizon, but it can be, uh, it can be longer. So, so I, I think that, you know, if, if these things are the the current framework essentially allows you to to capture these these effects and one one thing that we we did at the fund just before i left was uh, to essentially commit fund teams to uh, reflect um, uh, costs of climate adaptation in dsas uh, and we actually made this compulsory in debt restructuring cases so so the the idea that you know climate effects should be reflected in DSAs. I think that that message has been understood and in principle uh, implemented in the methodology. Thank you, Jeremy. Before going to Frederic and, uh, and, and Rebecca, let me just kind of read a remark from Hannah Ryder, who is the CEO of Development Reimagined. Uh, and this speaks to the kind of debt restructuring uh, uh, points. Uh, the idea that China and other creditors need to be together to negotiate with each borrower, uh, Hannah says, is a red herring. Uh, um, an often unknown fact is that in Paris club negotiations, borrowers are not even in the room for the final discussion. After representation of their case, the borrower exits, and the French representative conducts a shuttle diplomacy to inform the borrower of the outcome. 
totally new arrangements are needed. Uh, borrowers should and can coordinate and negotiate with creditors one by one. So um, also Anna um, and her team has written uh, quite a lot on the kind of borrowers club. So I would also encourage you to, to look at this. Frederic, over to you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a question actually to Jeromeen, but perhaps you want also to chip in. We didn't talk at all about private creditors as part of the architecture. And I wonder whether it's because, especially for countries that just access market as part of a, this round of funding, it's now deemed to be a mistake and it will all go back to official lending, ideally concessional, or does private sector actually have a role to play going forward? Because I also I'm struck that they priced the risk. So that that outcome would not have um, come as a surprise to them. Your question is actually for everyone on the panel. Who wants to take it? Sarah Jaina as well. I, I can go first. So I, I, I did not talk much about private creditors because my my, my uh, talk was about debt restructuring and in the debt restructuring context you know privately held debt is not that hard to restructure and i know this is sounds a bit flippant it, it's just not sort of the binding constraint uh, right now we pretty much know how to restructure bonds of course there are difficult situations right so in, in suriname for example you know it, it was very difficult because they had this oil exploration ongoing and so the basically the bondholders were arguing you're rich you don't need anything and the Senegalese would would be say this is pie in the sky so you you get difficult situations no but 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 if the, the a country has a credible threat that it's going to not pay and and this is um and it is supported by official institutions the private sector normally restructures it's true even at least in the case of publicly traded firms like Glencore that had secured debts, right? So we were incredibly worried. It was very difficult in, in Chad. Glencore had a, a super strong form of collateralization. And, and yet, ultimately, after a lot of foot dragging, they collaborated just because it was a reputational issue to them. In, in the case of Senegal, for example, managing private debt, as uh, Jeremy is saying, is quite different and probably it's easier for for at least for for governments uh, Senegal we did not participate to the to the common framework and even by not participating in the common framework we specified that uh, we do we should not talk about private debt because governments probably know how to how to deal with private debt and in this uh, financing need of course we're going to need private money but again on that on that aspect their logic their thinking their decision making process for any any project, any investment is quite different from, from the multilateral development banks or from the IFI. So that's, that's probably why the, 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 the issue, for example, for Senegal to tapping private money, we have elaborated a whole, uh, this new ESG framework that we are gonna be using in order to try promote uh, climate-friendly uh, project, et cetera. And we, we do not have much issues on, on, on that, but it's more on, on, on the other side. Thank you, Musa. Rebecca, over to you, Mike, over here. Thank you, and I 
should just preface, I'm not an expert on this at all, so <laughs> apologies if I've misunderstood how some of the mechanisms are expected to work, but it just sounds to me like there's really a lot of hope hanging on this idea that we can leverage uh, more, more private financing uh, into low-income countries uh, for investment particularly. Um, and I'm just wondering whether or not it's a little bit the two sides of the same coin, that some of the reasons private financing isn't flowing or the risk premiums attached are going to be increasing if a country is in debt distress or suffers from high debt overhang, that the risks associated are very much linked to sort of problems with exchange rate unpredictability or risks that the government's not investing in the sort of supplementary infrastructures that's needed to make sure that your investments are going to have a return. So is there an extent to which this idea of sort of guarantees is still kind of just the sort of flip side of the same, <laughs> the sort of getting to ultimately handled by the same problems and and are there not sort of fungibility concerns there too? I'm not taking advantage of my um, of my role as moderator to answer Rebecca. I wanted to check if Sarah Jane wanted to come in, or if not, uh, gentlemen, over to you. So this goes Would back like to, to something that Kalpana said at the beginning that it, you know there are countries in vastly different settings, and I, th I think we sort of conf we created the sort of a conflation thing at the end. So I, when when I was talking about about um, I think when we were talking about guarantees just now, right? What what we mean is guarantees or other forms of loss of risk uh, transfer uh, for the purpose of large scale climate finance. And the borrowers here are emerging markets. They are solvent emerging markets, not overly indebted countries, right? We're talking about India. We're talking about Indonesia. Uh, Right, and 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 so these are these are um, instances where where the 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 jump, the reduction in the cost of capital that you have to do to make this investment profitable is, is relatively small, right? But then I, I I do agree that I I sort of may have created the impression that you know maybe this is a solution for a much broader set of countries with deep solvency issues. Um, I agree with you that they are you know the. The, the important thing is the fundamentals uh, that that you also need to fix. So I, I I assume that there will be some retrenchment from ca private capital sources in frontier economies that is pr pretty much unavoidable, and this retrenchment probably cannot be overcome by uh, uh, MDB type guarantees or 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 first loss unless it is for very specific purposes. Right, where the where the project risks are controllable and and well selected, and maybe in the context of of RSTs or, or sort of other frameworks that that also reduce macroeconomic risk, right? So maybe you can combine it, you know, jet jet P type type things. Fantastic. Uh, I think our time is up, uh, and uh, please uh, do join me in kind of thanking Sarah Jane, Kalpana, Jeremy, and Musef for an incredibly kind of rich discussion, far far ranging from JetP debt uh, and concessional finance uh, and 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 the perspective of B uh, twenty countries. In particular, a big thank you to Sarah Jane who is in Manila, and I kind of lost count of what time of the night uh, might be. So, please join me in thanking them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.